20% of Manitoba is Indigenous. And if we're truly reflective of our own community, uh, we would have Indigenous education being woven throughout the entire system. Uh, Indigenous educators everywhere fostered, uh, mentored uh, in administrative positions, not just as teachers. And then we would also have uh, Indigenous educational leaders throughout the province. That means circles of elders, circles of knowledge keepers, circles of community leaders who are all focused directing education throughout the province. Hello, everyone. Today on the podcast, we are listening to an interview that we recorded with Nigan Sinclair from the University of Manitoba and Lori Bachevich from Erickson Elementary School in Rolling River School Division, talking about indigenizing the curriculum. I'm super excited about this episode, Jackie. I think it covers some really important topics about what indigenizing and decolonizing mean. And I think that's really helpful. And I also really enjoyed hearing what Lori went through when her school decided to go down that path. Yeah, and for me, this was the third time that I had heard Nigan present. The first time was in 2017 in Toronto, and he was amazing. He was on a big stage in a big theater, and I was so impressed with him. And every time since then, what I really like is that he always brings so much knowledge and experience and passion to his speaking events. And I'm so excited that he's going, that he took the time to be with us and to do an interview with us. So I, I can't wait to see how the episode turns out. Yeah, I think it's a great conversation. Let's dive in. Okay, let's do it. Hello and welcome to the Research Connection Podcast, the show that brings current expertise and cutting edge research and connects it with users in the community. My name is Lori Bachavich and um, I have been at Erickson Elementary School as a principal now for nine years. Um, and prior to that, I was the uh, teaching administrator out of Onanal Elementary for 12. My name is Nigon Sinclair and I'm an associate professor in the Department of Native Studies at the University of Manitoba. I'm also a columnist with the Winnipeg Free Press and I'm from a little Pegwis Indian settlement which is uh, now known as Pegwis First Nation uh, in the Interlake but my community uh, originally was what's now the city of Selkirk and so uh, I come from there. I was grown fostered there and uh, I am a recovering school teacher in that I, <laughs> been, I've been finished now for Geez, I haven't been a school teacher for 16 years. And, uh, and but, you know, fond memories of uh, really great times with kids. The, uh, the onerous expectations on Indigenous educators is still, still is in many ways. But when I was teaching, uh, we were doing three times the job as everybody else. So uh, you not only had to teach kids, but you also had to teach all your colleagues. And then you had to be kind of the face of all things Indigenous education for your administrator, for the community at large. At the time, I was the only Indigenous teacher in the south end of Winnipeg, which is pretty remarkable when you think about it because 20% uh, of Manitoba is Indigenous and we were still having firsts in major segments, swaths, uh, hundreds of schools. We were still only having one or two Indigenous teachers. Now it's a little bit different. We have you know, a handful here and there. 
but it's still nowhere near close to what the demands that we need for Indigenous educators across the curriculum, uh, across schools. And then what that means is that if we're truly reflective of our own community, uh, we would have Indigenous education being woven throughout the entire system. Uh, indigenous educators everywhere fostered, uh, mentored uh, in administrative positions, not just as teachers. And then we would also have uh, Indigenous educational leaders throughout the province. Uh, that means uh, circles of elders, circles of knowledge keepers, circles of community leaders who are all focused um, div, uh, directing education throughout the province. Um, what does it mean to indigenize something? We hear different words, indigenizing, decolonizing. Can we talk a little bit about the terminology just so we are clear what we're discussing here? So indigenizing um, is a uh, often a term that's used alongside decolonizing. And so one is kind of talking about dismantling, decolonizing, and then the other one's talking about building up, uh, indigenizing. To be to begin to sort of enter a foray into the conversation is to really think about the complexity of what the current educational system involves, and what that involves is an a long-standing 150-plus-year project of the removal of Indigenous voices, the erasure of those voices, the genocide of those voices, and the, that the Indigenous peoples have never contributed anything meaningfully. That's, that's the way that the curriculum operates. That's the way schools culture operates. That's the way that counseling, testing, assessment. And so uh, Indigenizing is something in which is impossible without being cognizant and aware of the power dynamics and the legacies that go into schools themselves. Uh, the hardest thing is what uh, Laurie was speaking about just a second ago, was how do we have hard conversations in the spaces in which people have been conditioned to think and act and engage in particular ways? That doesn't have anything to do with Indigenous peoples, per se. It's really non-Native peoples encountering their own racism and oppression that they've been taught. And so when Indigenous peoples are inserted into the equation, it's not the job of Indigenous peoples to decolonize a system because, frankly, it's not the responsibility of Indigenous peoples to try to create less violent environments because if Indigenous peoples had run it in the first place, it wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have been violent. It wouldn't have been based in racist stereotypes and uh, the idea that Indigenous peoples are deficient. So the challenge is, is that decolonizing most oftentimes really is a project that non-Indigenous peoples have to take upon themselves. Indigenous peoples can partake and support in some way, but indigenizing is something quite different. It's a project that should be led by Indigenous peoples to support the work of uh, integrating, weaving in, or in some cases, absolutely building from the ground up knowledge systems based on Indigenous traditions. And the, the secret to all of that is that we actually do more of it than I think we often give ourselves credit for. Because Indigenous peoples are the foundation of this country, uh, have been, will always be, uh, down to the names that we use, the practices. And then, you know, looking at what does it look like to live in a society uh, of... Uh, of equity, of reciprocity, of with the land. And Indigenous peoples are certainly a lot more closer to that and have taught more to Canadians than I think they have learned often from their own cultures that come from elsewhere. Laurie, this is sort of the process that you've been involved with in your school. Could you talk about 
the impacts of what this kind of work does for education? Why is it important that we work on both decolonization and indigenizing? I think from my perspective, and again, I'm sort of in Jackie's shoes too, I'm a learner uh, and always will be when it comes to any one of these topics. But I, I think, why is it important? Well, I don't know that it's just important. I think it's just, it's necessary. When I look back at the history in which, and I, I want to say first that I'm a settler to Treaty 2 land. Uh, Rolling River First Nation is a uh, is Treaty 4. That's a very interesting story in itself. And I grew up here. But I want to say that historically, I was not taught anything uh, in my history classes or in my own education around First Nation people and specifically the community that I I was living next to every day. Uh, we, we didn't have those conversations. Uh, the only conversations that I was ever part of were those in my own home. And so as I grew up and went into the education field, uh, I noticed as I was living that life as a young administrator, uh, that those conversations were still not happening. And I've been here for nine years. And like Nigon said, he sort of referenced the terms of decolonization and um, indigenization. It is literally like, for me, the research and the work that we did with BU uh, specifically was breaking everything down into pieces, basically. And now, just now, we're starting to rebuild. And uh, I may never see the end story of that. I don't think that I will, but I think it was necessary to have those really hard conversations. We had to look at our own selves and our own privilege and, and put it out on the table. And we still do that every day. And so it's, it's not just important work, it's necessary work uh, in order for our 62% population, our School of First Nations students. And I want them to see themselves and hear themselves and value themselves within the context of a school. And so it's necessary work. It's not just important work. It's, it's not just necessary work too. I mean, okay, so 20% of the province is self-declared Indigenous people. Uh, if you if you add in ancestry and people who are coming to their indigenous identity, identity for the first time or you know after a long time of erasure, we're getting to thirty forty percent. What that means is, uh, you know, virtually half of this province have ancestral ties or communal ties, meaning they live next door to Indigenous communities, and the other half will work with Indigenous people. They'll engage with Indigenous peoples in the workplace, they'll work, there'll be, you know, businesses that sell to Indigenous nations, or, uh, and then the remaining parts will be married to Indigenous people. So, what does that tell you? That if you cannot work effectively with Indigenous peoples, if you cannot uh, rid yourself of those violent, stereotypical, divisive views that have been taught in the past regarding Indigenous peoples, if you cannot pre be prepared to work effectively and meaningfully with Indigenous nations and communities, and that means understanding things that they have both gone through, but understanding how we have both been built by Indigenous contributions to our identity and to our culture and to our community, frankly, you don't deserve a job. You shouldn't, you are not employable, you are not effective. You are nothing but a divisive person in the community who's carrying stereotypical problematic views that the rest of us have to inherit and perform inquiries about and 
if we don't prepare non-Indigenous people, who I'm actually far more worried about, I'm, I'm far more worried about non-Indigenous peoples not being adequately prepared for the reality of living in Manitoba, which is that you must work with, live beside, or be married to an Indigenous person. If you're not prepared for that reality, frankly, you just, your, your education is absolutely worthless. It has done nothing for you but produce conflict. So if we do not indigenize the system and, you know, decolonizing is nice, but indigenizing is where the change comes because it actually involves the, the values and the ethics and the principles that make us who we are and how we live together. Then if we do not do that work and we do not prepare our students, indigenous students who are probably going to make it anyways because of the, uh, you know, the resilience of our people, the resilience of our communities. And frankly, schools have been so racist in the past. And the fact that Indigenous peoples have made it through is a miracle. The fact is that non-Indigenous peoples continue to be produced in the system as racist. And I have no more way of sugarcoating it than that. You talked earlier about kind of taking on the emotional labor of educating your colleagues in your early years as an educator. And now you're talking about preparing non-Indigenous peoples to be able to work with Indigenous peoples and be respectful in those relationships. Do you have some advice for people who are starting this journey of Indigenizing or decolonizing their own thinking? How can non-Indigenous people learn what they don't know? And how can they do it in a way that doesn't demand emotional labor from their Indigenous friends, colleagues, community members? I said before, you know, like I did three times the job as everybody else and I was paid only one salary versus three. But uh, th that sounds like a complaint, but it, I, I also very freely and willingly did that work. I never said no. I never, I mean, I could have easily said, no, I'm not going to go to, I was asked by every social studies teacher to come in and give the quote unquote indigenous lesson, right? I could have said, nope, you teach your own class, go stand up for yourself. But as a contributing community member, never mind the fact that as Anishinaabe, we're bred to, uh, you know, look to, look to give gifts. And our job is to give, give our gifts to our community. You'll find that Indigenous peoples won't find it taxing as long as it's appreciated or it's, it's understood and that we don't have to come over and over and over again and start doing the job of everybody else. I'm often told by my non-Indigenous colleagues after I give a, a lecture in Native Studies at the university, which I'm, I'm probably the person who has taught in every faculty and virtually every department on campus. And I don't mind doing it as long as I say to the people who are doing it is your job is to work so that I don't have to keep coming back. Your job is to, to work to ensure that the Indigenous peoples are in the spaces that you're in. Uh, the voices are in those spaces. I will help you learn as long as you're learning. Like if you're not going to learn and you're just going to be lazy and you're going to expect me to do all the labor for you, how different is that than taking and stealing all Indigenous land off our communities? Frankly, if we're doing all the heavy lifting and preparing uh, all of this uh, land and teachings within the land and the ways in which how to live in this place. And then settlers come in and just steal everything and then benefit off that and, and continue to say, well, we earned it. You, you benefited greatly from theft. And so I say the same thing to my colleagues is that I will come in. I'll be happily happy to do that. Work with your students, work with you, work with you on your lesson plan, on your curriculum, whatever that might be. But I'm not going to do it forever. And I'm certainly not going to do it without the expectation that you're going to do the work. 
that you're going to listen and that you're going to work with me in such a way that, that you can eventually stand up and do this on your own because I can't do this forever by myself. That's what I said, you know, when I was a, a single and only teacher uh, working three hour, three jobs and doing, you know, 90 hours a week uh, supporting Indigenous education in my school division. The, the bottom line of it is, is that indigenization cannot be on the backs of indigenous people because if it is then it's not really indigenization and then on top of that it's uh, the same kind of principle of residential schools uh, of uh, the Indian Act of Canada's policies involving indigenous peoples indigenous people do all the hard work uh, we are the ones who pay the most for treaties and Canada all Canada has to do is show up with five bucks every year and say oh that's good enough we're treaty people now I'm had to get my paper and write down what you said in the first place, Nigan, because I think that's part of the answer. And what you said is that decolonizing is not the job of the Indigenous people. That's our job. And I think maybe that's the part we're not taking on, and that's the part that we could take on, and that the emotional weight wouldn't be so heavy if what the Indigenous people were asked to do was build up and share. Like, but so, <laughs> that decolonizing is heavy work. And I think that non-Indigenous people need to get more involved in doing that. And I, I had to get my pen and paper and write that down because I hadn't thought of it that way before. Well, I think, yeah, for sure. And uh, what I find, uh, so hey, here's a good example. So I'll be invited to go and speak at this uh, church or this school or con I'll do this conference keynote or whatever. And I'll do this huge talk about indigenization, right? Like, so I'll talk about indigenous pedagogy and I'll talk about uh, what we refer to as baggage none, which is our theory of law in relation to how we think about education. And the first question I'll get is, but what about the uh, corrupt chiefs? And I'll be like, I just gave you the gold standard of indigenous education. You didn't write anything down. And now you want to talk about your stereotypes and your privilege, your white privilege. And you want to talk about your racist stereotypes, none of which is true. So here I am now teaching them about how uh, corrupt chiefs is not the problem. In fact, if there's anything, the problem is corrupt ministers to take joyrides on helicopters and have $18 orange juices. The problem is a prime minister who papers all of his friends with grants from the government to the tune of millions of dollars or the federal government that gets $50 million to MasterCard. That's the problem. The problem is not corrupt chiefs. And now here I am in you know, 10 minutes later, wasting my time trying to convince someone of their own racism when really I'm truly just trying to talk about how we should all live together and what's the best classroom that we can make. So while I came approaching indigenization, now I'm having to do all the heavy lifting of decolonization. And I haven't done any of the work necessary to try to build up uh, a better lives for our children in terms of indigenous education in the classroom. Now people go, oh, I guess I, I guess I sort of understand, or maybe you're right. Maybe chiefs aren't corrupt. I don't know. Uh, you know what? It's just, I'm going to go hear from other people. And I'm like, oh, for F sakes. Like, the, like my endless life is spent trying to convince people or understand, you know, try to get people to understand the absolute racism that they have inherited. And the school system has been the number one perpetrator of that racism.
So we're talking now about some of the pushback that happens. And I think that's a good direction to go. That pushback is really important. And so I think we should talk about how we can address it, or maybe Lori, how you have addressed it, and Negan, maybe how you have addressed it. I can speak a little bit about the pushback that I have received um, at the beginning of the process. I want to uh, say that now nine years in, in this particular setting, uh, there's less and less of it. It still exists. It's still there, but it's, it's done in a much different way and handled in a different way. And that comes down to relationship. So now what has happened in the end is I feel like we're developing really strong relationships with our community, with our First Nation community, and with the knowledge keepers and et cetera. So, so because of that relationship, there's less and less of that pushback. In the beginning, it was extremely difficult and challenging for me to the point some days where I felt like, uh, what am I doing? But I would say that pushback came back, came from teachers. You know, why are we doing this? Why are we learning about this? I got pushback from some of our community in regards to everything is Indigenous now, you know, those kinds of comments. And then I also got pushback from even from, you know, from our own First Nation community uh, in around the way things were done and maybe it wasn't done properly or etc. So there was all of this type of uh, sort of, I want to say conflict, there was definitely conflict at times and it existed because it always had existed. It was underlying and just waiting to surface. And because of some of the conversations we had started to have, uh, it just started to bubble up and we were getting a lot of pushback. And so some of my answers towards teachers, you know, I'm a learner here just as much as you are. I have no uh, knowledge, but it is our responsibility to, to push forward and keep going. One of the more common things I would hear and that came out of the research was, you know, I am not an Indigenous person. I don't feel comfortable teaching about Indigenous perspectives in the classroom. What if I say something wrong? What if I... And so as a staff, we did a lot of work around whose responsibility, just like what Nagan was saying, whose responsibility is what, right? It's not our responsibility to be teaching uh, ceremony, traditions, etc., it is our responsibility, though, to start the conversation, teach our students to think critically, and learn what each one of our gifts are and how important it is that we bring those gifts to the table and that we cherish them and we have a voice, just as what Nigan was suggesting. And uh, that was a, a five-year, five, six-year process for us to do that, bringing in lots of knowledge keepers, to work and consult with us, not for us, uh, in a collaborative and, and relationship-based way. And slowly that pushback has started to retreat. Uh, it still exists. The other thing we had lots of conversations with as a staff was around taking the risk. Ask questions, don't be afraid, and, and we will we'll get through it together. But what was really happening in all of that was we were forced to look in the mirror. We were forced to look at our own privilege and our own stereotypes and our own racism that existed within us. And that was really, really hard for people. And there were a lot of tears. There were a lot of questions. Uh, there were some that, that quit their job here because, because those were some of the difficult conversations we were having. And as a leader, I, I, I had to learn you know, how to be strong through that uh, and keep going 
and be brave enough to keep having those conversations. Can, can I just add one thing? I actually want to just add that um, after actually Nagan came and spoke to Rolling River School Division for a two-day session, you know, Erickson Elementary is a bit unique. We have, uh, we have staff that's hired by the school division, but we also have staff that's hired by the First Nation community to come in and work, uh, both as educational assistants, a language teacher, and now we are actually uh, training one to, she's taking her, her um, education degree through PENT. And so our school is probably considered to have the most staff within the division that are Indigenous. And we're very proud of that because we feel that we're working towards what Nigan was talking about, about having more teachers and people in leadership positions, etc., and just trying to cultivate that. Um, but after the two-day session, I, we, had a, we had a third day in our schools. I abandoned the topic of a, just a typical staff meeting, and I, I put it aside because I could feel that there were tensions um, and there was a lot of emotions after those two days. Um, and we had also just had uh, you know, a major incident happened in our community in which one of our CMP officers was actually um, shot. And so, and his children attended school here, etc. So there was a lot of emotions going on. And so abandoned the staff meeting agenda, we had a circle conversation. Um, and what came from that conversation, and I won't go into it, it's actually still quite emotional. But what came from that conversation was the richest dialogue that we had ever had as a staff. And much stronger relationships as a result. And, and now, and now and you can see the impact of just that one conversation on our staff two, three years later. I think it's almost time to wrap up, but I want to give Negan the last word. Do you have something to add, Negan? Oh, I get, I get the for last. It. Hey, that's a lot of pressure. What's Take going on away. there? <laughs> Um, so there, I've been listening uh, to Jackie and Lori and, uh, you know, they're doing the work necessary to bring forth, uh, evoke and uh, e empower change in their spaces. The challenge, of course, is that teachers often have only control over the four walls of their classroom, uh, the direct relationships with their students. And beyond that, the problem is that if you don't take the, take upon the challenge of the real work where people learn, where students learn, which is the hallways, uh, which is the office, which is the library, which is when they go home at night and speak to their parents, because their time in a classroom is so fleeting and so small, it's like two, three percent of a student's day is learning in a classroom. My, my point of saying it, all of that is, is that the broader society is where this has to go. And it can't just be within a classroom setting because it actually, that actually produces more trauma and more conflict. Because what happens is, is that if you have empowered students who are like, yes, Indigenous voices matter. Yes, I'm a treaty person. Yes, uh, all people have gifts in my community and it's our job to invite all people to engage one another in meaningful dialogue and meaningful change and meaningful growth. The problem is the society doesn't work like that. So the society uh, works 
in many ways absolutely opposite to that. And when students walk into the hallway, they realize it. When they walk down the street, they do. When they even get home with their parents, they realize that that world is opposite to what the teacher has taught them. So if we don't recognize the reality that we as educators have a role to play within educating the broader society, and that means that we have to get out of our classrooms, we have to become active and yes, political, because all of this is political. And we have to have conversations in the Tim Hortons. We have to have conversations with our families. We have to have conversations on social media with people who are sometimes not interested in, in those kinds of conversations. And provoking and engaging and empowering people doesn't just take place with students, but takes place with all of those communities that we interact with. You don't just stop being a teacher at 3.30 on a Friday. And that means that you're working in helping us to create a better world, uh, a more meaningful world, and a world-based and more reciprocal, meaningful relationship, mutually beneficial relationships. It uh, doesn't just end at 3.30 either. Uh, and that means that you take that into your worlds, your engagements with others, uh, what you write about, what you think about, how you raise your families. That's how change really happens because students can learn that information within the four walls of your space, but they don't have the power to do it. You have the power. Teachers have the power. Uh, administrators have the power. And hopefully those young people will grow up to be like you because you've mentored them into beautiful, amazing, contributing members of our community. And we will all be different for, than what we had inherited. Yeah, that's a really beautiful way to end. It's hopeful and it gives some direction. So I think that's great. And I just wanted to add to that. First, I want to say thank you and miigwech for that because sometimes I need to hear that. I need to hear that to keep going. But I do want to offer just as a, an administrator to young, new, upcoming teachers, if any of them are listening to this, that they have a real place in this process and uh, they need to recognize where they come from and who they are first. That is really, really important. And then, uh, and then go from there. And most importantly, don't be afraid to take risks and ask questions and be courageous because they're the ones that are going to make the changes in this system. All right. Thank you so much, everyone. I really appreciate your time and your expertise. And I've enjoyed this conversation and learning from all of you. Thank you. Miigwech. Thank you. So I really enjoyed that conversation with Lori and Nigan. Um, I think they both had some excellent perspectives and they come from different places when they come to talk about indigenizing the curriculum. Um, after we finished that conversation with them, uh, Michelle and I had an opportunity to talk about it and we realized that the part that we would like to add to this podcast was some more information about the research that Brandon University had conducted um, with Erickson Elementary School. And so the second half of the podcast today, uh, we have recorded an interview with Heather Duncan, the Dean of Education at Brandon University. Uh, she was one of the researchers on the project and uh, I think you'll enjoy what she has to say about the topic as well. So um, the project was Nino Pinatisawin, which means a good life. And it was a project undertaken by the UKers um, and it was funded by Indigenous Affairs. Karen
example, now wrote a grant which was successful and which gave us funding to be able to do things with the school and enable the schools to do things to indigenize their curriculum. So we worked with Ericsson Elementary and Ericsson uh, Collegiate, mainly because they have a large indigenous population that, that go to both schools. So we also worked with Rolling River First Nations and uh, with the late Charles Gawish, who was the education director there. So the aim was to, you know, work with the community, work with the schools as equal partners, because we can't do this ourselves. We need to get buy-in from the communities and work with the communities. They, they need to work with us. We all need to work together. So it was, it was a community-based project with uh, lots of community partners. The idea was that elders from the community would come into the schools and do things with the kids. Initially, we thought we would get one or two elders, but there, were so many there are so many different skills that elders have that we actually had several elders come into the school and work with the students. And that was really successful. Um, they, they made, made you know, long skirts, ribbon skirts and for the girls and uh, they had feasts and storytelling sessions, etc. So the elders were very much part of this and worked with the schools. Um, what we did, well, first of all, we wanted to, you know, measure the culture, uh, you know, of the schools. And so we did um, a survey with all the students in elementary and in the secondary school. And uh, we also measured resilience and, um, you know, how, how comfortable they felt at school. Um, and how, how much they felt that Indigenous culture was part of their schools at that time. And we were really very surprised that, you know, even though there was an Indigenous population and, uh, you know, a European uh, descent population, that all the students, for, for all the questions to do with culture, they all respected Indigenous culture they all said they respected the elders. And that was really one of the, the great things about this project, the respect for indigenous culture that permeated both schools and in particular, in particular the elementary. And it's easier to do um, things with elementary students because they have the same teacher all the time. And uh, it's, you know, they're not moving from class to class. So it's easy to build up that relationship and do things with students than it is in the secondary schools. Um, what we did find with that initial survey was that students in the elementary school felt fairly resilient, but there was a gap between the resilience of Indigenous students and uh, the, the European students, uh, which was quite noticeable right throughout all the grades. Uh, there was, um, in particular, a shift after grade three. Students did not feel so comfortable in school after grade three. Um, and speaking to Laurie and, and the school staff, 
what they said is, you know, kids come into school and they don't see differences. They're all just kids. But as they grow older and uh, are exposed more to different things, then that tension creeps in and there is a feeling of difference. And that's partly what this project wanted to address, that feeling of difference between the students. Because one of the things our Indigenous students said was that it was, it was difficult for them to make friends. And that ran right through. So how, how do we build a culture in which friendship, um, partnership, it is, um, you know, is the norm. So the, the, there were several activities and over the 18 months of the project. And uh, we did see an improvement in the resilience scores right across the board. Yeah. Uh, we had a scale and, and um, I don't have the items on it right here, but we had a scale that had been pre-tested uh, that measured different things. It measured, you know, how they, they felt about coming to school, how how adversity um, affected them. So if they had a setback, did that set them back for the whole day or did they bounce back? Things like that. Did they like coming to school, which was part of the culture thing, not really resilience, but it's all integrated because if students like coming to school, then school is not a frightening place for them and they feel they can cope. So it's really, how do they cope with life in school? And how do they bounce back after adversity? You know, does it, you know, really drag them down? Or can they say, okay, I've done this wrong and I'm going to move on forwards. So it was questions around that, you know, how, how things affected them and how quickly they, they, you know, they recovered from any setbacks. So you, yeah, did the same. You used the same tool at the beginning and end, or somewhere in the middle. Yes, we used the same tool, and uh, there was there were similar questions for grades uh, one to three, and the, the questions became a little more expanded for uh, grades uh, four to six, and then for high school, again there was that expansion. We tried to keep the language very simple for grades, uh, you know, one to three, and then it was a little more complex for four to six, and then, uh, you know, a longer survey, but asking the same types of questions for the high school. So yeah, we did the same survey at the start and at the end, and it was interesting to see how, um, you know, the resilience crept up, um, but there was still that, you know, that concern about not being able to make friends and you know interestingly they, you know they they go to the high school when they're after grade six and you noticed a drop off in the resiliency uh, from grade seven to eight you know high school was a scary place uh, elementary school they had been there for six years they'd build up that comfort level but you just noticed that shelving when they went went to the high school and uh, that, that was really interesting for us. Quite predictable, but uh, you know, really reinforced how much more support students need in that first initial stage going from grade going into grade seven and through to grade eight, because I mean it's not only educational transition, it's all the emotional and physical transition that happens during that 
adolescent stage that um, is all in the mix for for those students and it's they, they do need a lot of support then and I think the more support you can give them in grade eight then you see lower levels of dropout you know in the high school and, and one thing that we did notice um, just looking at the numbers in the surveys was that there was a dropout rate in, in the high school over grade 9, 10, 11. And that, that, that is crucial if we want our, you know, our Indigenous students to go on to post-secondary. So keeping them in school and making school a place that they want to be is key. And that, I think, needs to happen very much in grades 7 and 8 so that uh, you know, that the secondary school becomes a home for them as well, an educational home too. But as far as indigenizing the curriculum, you know, it's, it's a funny term, isn't it? Indigenizing. Um, I don't know if I like it all that much. Uh, it, it's sort of, you're doing something to someone, but, you know, instilling that indigenous theme throughout the school is, is key and, uh, you know, the funding from the grant provided um, money to buy quite a library of, of books that are written by Indigenous authors. Um, it allowed buying of, of, you know, rugs and uh, furniture um, and things like that that reflected the Indigenous culture. And so when you go into the elementary school, then you very much feel that you know there's a merging of cultures in there it's it's visual it's visible and the same as in the high school um they, they did a lot of different things uh to you know incorporate indigenous culture throughout the school they did a lot of trips more and activities outdoor with elders and things like that uh you know in various different classes how do they decide, or maybe it's it's in Erickson, maybe it, because of the location, it's only one Indigenous culture, but I know that this has been a question that's come up before. If there are multiple Indigenous cultures, and sometimes they are in conflict with each other, how did you decide which of those Indigenous teachings to bring into the school, or was that, was that not a consideration because of the location? Oh, it was a big consideration. Um, the, the theoretical framework that guided all the actions for this was the good life, you know, the seven teachings. And uh, I think the seven teachings, you know, without going into specifics, are relevant to every different culture. It doesn't matter who you are. It's, it's a way of being, and it's a way of being well within yourself and within the school and within the community. So we didn't focus on, on anything, any particular indigenous culture. It was very much a generalized infusion built on how can we establish the good life within, within these schools. So that, that is a very good question, Michelle, because yeah, there's not one indigenous way of being, and there is a lot of conflict around you know, this is not the way we do it. And there are so many ways of doing it. 
So we've got to be very careful that we don't say that there's just one way of mm -hmm. indigenizing the curriculum. But I think it's building up that awareness of the history of what's gone beforehand. And uh, because even now, there's still not all that knowledge of residential schools, etc. Even though the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Committee, you know, they they developed a set of guidelines, but there's still not that general, that general in-depth recognition of the history and the why, you know, what happened and the deep hurt that it occurred. And, uh, you know, we've, st we've got a lot of work to do. So it's, it's building up that knowledge base uh, within, you know, the students and us as educators ourselves, we've got to build up that knowledge base with our own pre-service teachers, which is key. And uh, we can do a lot more, I think, in faculty of education towards creating that indigenous theme throughout, throughout our courses. And I know a lot of uh, professors are doing that and doing it very successfully, but we've still got a lot of work to do as educators as educators educating ourselves, uh, just looking at who we are and how we see things and taking off that judgmental lens and uh, being open to, you know, recognizing what has gone before and what needs to be done in the future. And of course they say seven generations and it's going to take, take a long time. But, but even though we can't do it, you know, short term, we can certainly build up and keep going through, throughout, you know, the years to try and make things more equitable. Thank you for listening to the Research Connection podcast. You can visit our website for links to everything that was mentioned in the episode and for more Research Connection content at www.brandonu.ca slash bu-cares. Be sure to rate and subscribe so you can stay up to date with current research that impacts your community. Thank you.